Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 226 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're answering weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. It's another Fifth Friday, so we're bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what topics are you going to be answering questions about today? We're going to be uh, covering topics like secret societies, binding demons, reenacting Catholic history, killing vampire-human hybrids, Neanderthals in the afterlife, how the universe is able to expand faster than light, and also quantum leaping into priests and the sacraments. Wow, very good. Nice, interesting question. So let's listen to your answers. Uh, Let's try out a weird question from Nick. Okay. I understand the Catholic Church bans membership in secret societies for many reasons, especially since historically groups like the Freemasons were seen as anti-clerical. I was wondering how secret does a secret society need to be? I recall when I was inducted in the Honor Society Phi Beta Kappa, it was brought up there were secret rituals, but done away with during the anti-Masonic movement in the 19th century. So would it have been illicit for a Catholic to be in something like this when the secrecy was in place? From my understanding, lots of fraternities had histories like this. The only one, to my knowledge, that keeps the secrecy is Yale's skull and bones. Would that also be banned from the Catholic point of view? So actually, Skull and Bones is not the only secret society that's still out there. In fact, it's not even the only secret society at Yale, uh, at Yale University. It it has rivalries with at least a couple of other secret societies. One of them is called Scroll and Key. Uh-huh. Another is called Wolf's Head. And they like play pranks on each other and steal each other's stuff and brag about it internally and things like that. Uh, so, you know. Good what, college hijinks. Whatever. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, the church doesn't actually ban membership in secret societies. That's not what canon law says. And it isn't what canon law said under the 1917 code, because I went back and checked. Oh. Because this canon was modified. Originally, the, uh, and I knew it was modified, the uh, 1917 version of the canon mentioned Masonic organizations specifically, but it was broader than that. And then what happened was they they made it more general in the, Mm -hmm. they just took out the reference to the Masons and just talked about the principle. But the principle that was articulated both in the 1917 code and in the 1983 code of canon law was Catholics are forbidden to join organizations that plot against the church. Oh, well, so it's not secrecy. That's the issue. It's plotting against the church. That's the issue, because if you're a Catholic, you shouldn't be plotting against the church. Duh. That seems Um, very, very obvious. yeah. Yeah. And so um, so it was it's actually okay to be members of secret societies, provided they're using their powers for good. So, you know, you could join, let's say, the CIA or something as not long as you're not working on Project MK Ultra. 
um, which was bad. Um, But uh, you could join other groups like that have secret stuff, like the Knights of Columbus until recently. Oh, really? Yeah, because their initiation oath was secret for a long time. And the reason is it actually this stuff kind of goes back to the 19th century, because back in the 19th century, they didn't have the Internet. And so there was a question of what are you going to do when you have free time? Because they didn't have the enormous time suck of the Internet. And so what they would do if you were a man, you know, you don't want to spend all your time. Dealing with domestic issues. You want to go out and be with the guys some. And so they had these men's clubs that were um, uh, in the 19th century. A lot of them got started. And and it was the hip, cool thing to be in a secret men's club. Like the ancient order of the buffalo. Yeah, exactly. From the Flintstones. Of water buffalo, water buffalo. Okay, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the so the Freemasons were part of that. They actually got started before the 19th century, but the Freemasons were one such group. There were lots of others as well, and and Catholics could be interested in such things. But you know, here in America, all these other men's groups—they're Protestant, and what's the Catholic alternative? Yeah. So, so that's how we got the Knights of Columbus. And, you know, another big thing in the 19th century, because everyone was reading Sir Walter Scott, was uh, chivalry. You know, oh, people are reading Ivanhoe yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, we're going to be the Knights of Columbus and, uh, and, and we're going to have secret oaths just like those other guys, only ours will be less violent. And so this was a way for Catholic men to kind of get in on some of that same secret club action, only using their powers for good. But it was still a secret thing. And as long as as long as your secret special chocolate fudgy club is doing good stuff rather than bad stuff, it's okay. All right. Uh, Thank you very much for the question, Nick. Appreciate it. From Patrick. Uh, My friends have asked me to pray with phrases like I bind Satan in the name of Jesus. I bind all demons for the sake of the blood of Christ. I bind. I cast out. I am uncomfortable with the idea of invoking any power to bind or otherwise command evil spirits to do anything. The idea of addressing evil spirits is alien, repugnant, and even sounds occultic to me. However, some priests on the internet pray in this way and recommend that their viewers do likewise. Prayers are or should be addressed to God and for the intercession of angels and saints before God in heaven. Among the things we can pray for are conversion and the conversion of sinners. When I mention this, I'm accused of neglecting the urgent need for spiritual warfare. Is there a charitable way to tell my friends that confronting demons in this way is highly not recommended? I have to be marginalized by the prayer groups that insist on these formulas. Oh, if I have to, I'm ready for that. So this is a very interesting question. It has several aspects. Um, now, I understand why the uh, why using language like I bind you or I bind demons or whatever. I understand why that would be uncomfortable for several reasons. One reason is this is a traditional part of this binding language is actually has a really long history. Um, it and it's not exclusively Christian. This language shows up in various rituals of a non-Christian nature. 
And uh, and in fact, if it common now, I would say what magic is, it's it's a ritual that's not approved in a given culture. Okay, And that's the difference between a religious ritual and a magic ritual is the religious ritual is the one that's approved culturally. And the magic ritual is the shady, unapproved. Okay, well, okay, binding language shows up in both. But it does show up in a lot of um, in a lot of magic rituals, like in the Greco-Roman world. Okay, you will find um, you will find you know incantations, uh, you know ritual words that get that use this binding language for a variety of purposes. Sometimes it's you know if you have the image of binding, you know you're tying something. Yeah, and so one thing you can do is tie up your enemies magically so they can't mess with you and so you'll find these curses Mm -hmm. that are like i bind so and so my evil business nemesis that's running the competing bakery across town right you know so he can't mess with me magically Mm -hmm. and so you have that kind of curse binding then it also gets used in love magic where you'll have like some you'll you'll be reading one of these incantations and it'll be like I bind Barbara the beautiful to me so that she'll totally fall in love with me and we can have lots of babies and stuff. Um, That seems so unfair to Barbara the beautiful. Well, there is this kind of violent aspect to the love magic that has been pointed out. Um, You you also find binding in another way, uh, even in Christian contexts. If you have, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but there's a, a a prayer probably was not really written by St. Patrick's, but it's called St. Patrick's Breastplate or the Lorica of St. Patrick. Have you, oh, are you I have familiar heard with that? that? Yes, yeah. but I couldn't quote it to you. So it starts with an invocation of the Trinity, mm-hmm. but then it goes on from there to start uh, talking about binding elements of God's creation to, oh. to, this, to the one who's praying it. So it'll be like, I bind the flashing of lightning to myself, and I bind the fierce winds to myself, and the power of fire to myself, and naming all these elements of nature in God's creation, asking to be protected. So this is yet another kind of binding that's okay. out there. And, and and it's got a part of Christian tradition. I mean, it's right there in St. Patrick's Breastplate. It's also not just there. I was reading a book of... Um, of Egyptian rituals, once Christian rituals that we've dug up in Egypt because that's where it's dry and the papyrus survives. And they would have rituals that were kind of like sacramentals. One of them was a prayer to get a dog to shut up. Oh, I need that one. Yeah. And and in that one, if I recall correctly, and I may be misremembering, but if I recall correctly, the the one who praying it is invoking the Trinity and asking God to bind that dog so it won't bark during the night. And um, and so this binding language gets used now. OK, you might say, well, it's been used by pagans, so we shouldn't ever use binding language. Yeah. Except what do we read in Matthew 16? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and whatever you bind Bind. on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus himself, and also in Matthew 18, used binding language to articulate spiritual authority being given to the disciples. Yeah. And so given that it's right there in the Gospels, this binding language is going to find a place in Christian tradition. So we can't say, oh, 
pagans did this, we can't. Right. So there is a place for binding language in, in, in the church. The question is, who should be using it and when? Well, one problem with ordinary people confronting demons and doing this binding language is ordinary lay people, I mean, they've got a certain kind of authority because they share the common priesthood of mm-hmm. the baptized, but they don't have authority beyond that. They don't have the kind of authority that an ordained priest has, or much less, the kind of authority that's been delegated to an exorcist. Mm -hmm. And so the church is much more hesitant about ordinary people engaging with demons in this way. And I think there's good reason for that. Um, I've seen people, not specifically in the Catholic context, but there are in some of our Protestant friends, including in the Pentecostal movement, who do this kind of stuff also. You yeah. know, they'll be binding demons and things like that. And that's and and they'll be kind of cavalier about it. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but it's something that you have to be careful about because like we see in the book of Acts, there's one place where an exorcist who's not authorized is trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name and also mentions Paul and the demon just eats his lunch for him. Yeah. You know. Also, if you look in Jude, uh, in Jude uh, verses 9 and 10, Jude is giving a warning about being cavalier with respect to, to various spirits. And he says, when the archangel Michael contended with the devil disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume. So this is Michael himself, the prince of the heavenly host. He did not Uh, presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, that is, upon the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile whatever they do not understand. So Jude is warning against taking a too cavalier attitude. And it's like, you know, Satan, I condemn you, that kind of stuff. Okay, even Michael Michael didn't do that, is what he's saying. So I would say there's something of a balance to be struck here. Um. The oh, by the way, before I get to that, I also wanted to mention one other thing, which is uh, Patrick mentioned prayers or utterances like this being addressed only to God. Actually, you know, Jesus does address demons directly yeah. and say things like "Get out of this guy." Right. Jesus even addresses non-animate thing or non-intelligent. Yeah, like the things. fig tree. Well, the fig tree. He curses the fig tree. He also. Uh, rebukes the wind and the waves right. to calm them down, and it, that's in Mark four. And in Luke four, he rebukes a fever, and and uh-huh. tells the fever to get lost. And so, it I, I wouldn't be exclusive about you can only address God or the saints. There is this precedent for even addressing inanimate things. And of course, Jesus knows the fever is not an intelligent being, but he's but it's still okay for him to address it and use his power or draw on the power of his father to get rid of it. And this is just one way of demonstrating that. So actually, I take a fairly generous approach or fairly open approach to these things as modes of speech, but you want to be really careful and you don't want to be cavalier about it. And I, I, I understand the concern for, I don't want to do this, and I would say, in terms of talking to your friends, even though I, I wouldn't outright say this can never be done, I would point out, look, there are these, there are these cautions, 
and we want to be careful. I'm aware of one priest on the internet who actually has like taken excerpts from the rite of exorcism uh-huh. and just tweaked it a little bit. So they're, and this is it, so the lady. Was so the lady. Oh. But instead of saying I, I cast you out, it'll be like I ask Jesus to cast you out. Oh, I see. But you know, still. this is still kind of iffy to me. Um, what I would say is there are prayers that the church has approved for use by the lady of deliverance prayers. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops put out a booklet of them. I would suggest getting that and using that if it's your thing. Of course, you can also have impromptu prayers. You don't have to use a fixed one. But it's not everybody who is called to engage in this kind of stuff. And I would say to this group, you know, there are some risks here. You need to be aware of. You need to be careful. And this is not my thing. God calls us to different things. And this just happens to not be one of mine. Patrick, thank you. We've got to take a quick break. Right back with more weird questions for Jimmy Aiken. This one comes from Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia writes, I'm a budding Revolutionary War reenactor in the Ohio Valley, the frontier of the U.S. in that time frame. Oh, I see what she's saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. OK. The, uh, we're Catholics. Oh, we're, we're Catholics even here during. Oh, I were. think she means work. We're, we're Catholics even here during that time period. How would they fulfill their yearly confession and mass attendance obligation? I've always wanted to portray a Catholic, but I'm struggling to find any info. My husband prefers civil war. So I also have kind of the same question about the same thing. What would a Catholic portrayal of a civil war Catholic look like? Any resources for how to find actual people to base my portrayal on to honor the real Catholics that were here for those pivotal times of history? So I'm not an expert in the history of the Ohio Valley, but I would expect there were at least some Catholics there, not very many during the Revolutionary War era. Um, But there were American uh, there were American Catholics at the time. Many of them were in the state of Maryland, which was specifically set up as a place of religious liberty so that Catholics could go there and not be persecuted. Although even in in Maryland, the majority were Protestants, but that's where you had a lot of Catholics. It was founded, incidentally, by Lord Baltimore, who was a Catholic. And that's why he was interested in setting up this kind of Catholic haven in the colonies. And that's why the capital is called Baltimore, after Lord Baltimore. Um, But, you know, they didn't just stay in in Maryland. There were Catholics elsewhere, and I'm sure there were some in the Ohio Valley. In terms of how they fulfilled their uh, Sunday obligation and their Easter obligation, as best as they could. Uh, This was frontier territory, and they often didn't have access to churches and priests. Uh, One of the ways that uh, people in the early Americas tried to help with that was by having priests who were circuit riders. And they would go around, it's kind of like a priest today in some, you know, out, out out in a remote area may have multiple parishes he drives around to. Back then, they would have circuit riding priests who would get on a horse and travel to the different locations. And when they were able to come, the Catholics in the area would get together and they'd have confessions and mass and things like that. Um, but it was kind of catch as catch can in some locations. In terms of the Civil War, so by the time of the Civil War, there were a lot more Catholics in America. There's still a minority, but there had been waves of French immigration and German immigration and Irish immigration. You know, the potato famine occurred in the 1840s, yeah. 20 years before the Civil War, and Polish immigration. 
I was reading a memoir of the Civil War uh, once um, called Company H by a guy named Sam Sam Watkins, and he talks about um, a particular Polish officer. If I recall his name, they called him like General Auliduski, which oh. he, he both wasn't a general and oh. that wasn't really his name. But that's what they kind of heard. That's, they, they that's what the they, American spin on a Polish exactly. name. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. he tells amusing stories about him. Uh-huh. Um, but you had Catholics on both sides in the Civil War. Um, in terms of how to how to find out about specific Catholics. Now, you can always, you know, just say, you can always make up a persona for uh, reenacting purposes. You could say, well, I'm a Catholic who just arrived in the Ohio Valley from Baltimore or something like that, you know, for the Revolutionary War. Um, But um, the, uh, if you want to find out about real Catholics who lived, in these periods, the place to go primarily, I would say, would be the local historical societies, um, at, at, at least for the Revolutionary War, because there's less information about that. Um, some ways you could proceed in gathering some information would be go to the diocese and ask the diocese, you know, what parishes existed at this time? Oh, yeah. And are there any cemeteries? any Catholic cemeteries from this time that I could go to and gather names or, you know, look at a parish register or a baptismal register and then take the names you find and go to the historical society and say, do you have any information on these or other Catholics from this period? How cool. That's And they may be able to do things like show you uh, newspapers or things like that that could give you additional information. Obviously, census records are another thing. Once you know the person is Catholic, you can then look in the census record. Also, you could just look in census records and, for example, look for Irish names or oh, yeah. French names or yeah. Polish names or something. Um, and then for the Civil War, there's a lot more information available because there are different Civil War societies that um, work actively. I'm more familiar with them than Revolutionary War societies, although I know they exist, too. But checking with these societies that are trying to preserve the memory of these times, you can ask for you know, what do you know about Catholics that were involved in in these events? Uh, Cynthia, fascinating. That was a good, weird question. I uh, didn't see that one coming. Uh, and I hope that you have success in uh, finding what you're looking for. Uh, no phone number today. All the questions have come to us via the Internet. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. And up next, this question comes from Stephanie. My whole family loves Mysterious World. I'm assuming she means Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World available every Friday on the Internet. My son has a weird question. My son wants to know if it's moral to kill vampire-human hybrids. I like this kid. The question is inspired by the second Blade movie when the character Abraham kills the hybrid fetuses. So I haven't seen the second Blade movie, and I don't know the details of how the vampire-human hybrids work in that movie. But what I can address is the principles, and I'll probably need to consider continue this on the other side of the break. But basically, it's going to depend on a few things. One of the things it's going to depend on is the degree of freedom that these hybrids have. Oh, yeah. If they have the freedom to resist their vampire instincts and get their needs, like if they need to drink blood, but they can get it in some other way than by attacking people, um, then it's not going to be okay to kill them because there are other better alternatives. Uh Also, 
even if they don't have the freedom to resist, if they're just like animalistic. What a good cliffhanger. Oh, we're leaving it there. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. And Stephanie has an awesome son, and he wants to know if it would be moral for him to kill vampire-human hybrids. So we covered if the case of if the vampire-human hybrids have sufficient freedom to resist their instincts and are able to get their needs met in another way. No, you can't kill them in that case. If Now, if one of them goes rogue and, and starts attacking people, well, you can kill them at that point, just like you could kill a normal a human. human who yeah. goes rogue and starts killing people. Um, on the other hand, what if the vampire-human hybrids don't have the freedom to resist their impulses, so they're just animalistic attackers who are going to attack no matter what you do? There's no reasoning with them. Well, still, you can't automatically kill them, just like you can't automatically kill a tiger. Oh, yeah, because, right. Just because it can attack a human yeah, being. There, there may be other ways to deal with it mm-hmm. that are uh, that are safe, you know, so you may keep these vampire human hybrids in zoos yeah. and things like that and have the vampire human hybrid king show on Netflix or whatever. Um, <laughs> Instead of Tiger King. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, right. But I'm, that would even be weirder, I guess. <laughs> it's hard, but it would be weirder. <laughs> um, but uh, but if you can take care of them safely in some other way, then you couldn't just kill them. On the other hand, if they are um, if they are just a threat, yes, you can kill them you, to protect other people. Now, there's then a question of because. Part of this was about embryos. Right. And the question didn't ask about the embryos, but since it was mentioned, I'll I'll discuss it anyway. Um, So embryos are just immature forms of a life form. And if something is not a human, and there's a question about would a vampire-human hybrid, it's going to depend on how much vampire DNA versus human DNA it's got in it, is would it count as a human or not? Let's assume that it is a human. I would say, even though it is a potential future danger, you could not kill it as an embryo because it's still innocent at this point. It's not a threat while it's in the tank or whatever it's in. If it's a human, you've got to wait until it becomes a threat or at least is posing some kind of proximate danger to people. To, to kill it at that point. On the other hand, let's suppose they're not human and they're just like animalistic vampires that, yeah. you know, don't even right. have the full use of reason. Well, then it's in the same category as animals. And I would say if you like, if I came across a nest of rattlesnake eggs yeah. in an, in an area where if these things hatch, they're going to kill people. Right. And I don't have a better alternative. I could go ahead and step on the rattlesnake eggs. Yeah. And so I would say there would be some situations where um, it could potentially be legitimate to preemptively deal with non-human vampire-human hybrids in this way, even at an early stage of life. But but you got to meet a whole bunch of conditions for that to be yeah. legitimate. What about a rattlesnake omelet? Well, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want one if the rattlesnake eggs were fertilized. Oh yeah. All right. Fair enough. If if you get if you have a supply of unfertilized rattlesnake, rattlesnake eggs, eggs, then maybe. <laughs> maybe. I have eaten <laughs> rattlesnake before. Have you? Yeah. T- don't. It, does it taste like chicken? Is well, it's a reptile. So and you know. So of course it does. 
Yeah. I mean, dinosaurs, uh, re- reptile, um, chickens themselves are dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, they're surviving birds are a surviving type of dinosaur. And so, you know, things, reptiles, birds, they all kind of taste the same. Although when I ate crocodile, yeah, it tasted like a combination of chicken and catfish. Oh, because really? it's a water dwelling creature yeah. and it has this oily, fishy bottom dweller uh, type yeah. taste like a catfish merged with chicken. Uh, Stephanie, once again, thank your son uh, for that very, very fine question. Uh, and um, should we approach any kind of vampire apocalypse? I hope he'll be there to defend me. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Connor F., Tom W., Roger F., Derek V., and Thomas A. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Edith asks this, Jimmy, uh, assuming... The theory of human evolution, as popularly understood, is correct. Mm-hmm. Are we to assume that the human soul evolved alongside the growing capabilities of the human mind and body? For example, from vegetative to sensitive to rational. If so, at what point in human evolution would the jump have been made to each stage? And what would be the status of the souls of early proto-humans who died before people achieved the capacity for higher souls? In a related question, where do archaic human subspecies fit into this? Can we make any guesses on whether they had rational souls? And if so, can we expect to see Neanderthals, Denisovans, Denisovans, Denisovans etc. in the hereafter? So... There are several things here. This is actually several questions rolled into one, yeah. but I'll, I'll do my best but good to ones. explore These are good. them. Yeah. Um, so the in the case of the human soul, there has been a discussion historically about whether we, it's inherited from the parents the way the body is or whether it's directly created by God. The first position that the soul is produced by the parents and thus is inherited is a position known as traducianism. The other, that the soul is directly created by God from nothing, is known as creationism. Historically, there's been, as I indicated, a discussion on this question. In 1950, uh, Pope uh, Pius XII landed in favor of creationism. So that's the position of the church today, that the human soul is directly created by God from nothing. Um, now, he didn't teach that infallibly, but that's the church's position. In terms, so that kind of settles the question for true humans or biblical humans. Mm-hmm. Um, their souls did not evolve. Uh, they were created directly by God, and they also wouldn't have passed through the vegetative, sensitive, rational stages. 
Um, they, when you're born, you have the soul you always have and your body may manifest and grow in different ways under the guidance of your soul, but it's still the same soul. Mm -hmm. So even an unborn baby, even if it doesn't have a brain yet, it's got a rational soul. It's just the body hasn't developed to the point of allowing the rationality to manifest yet. So where there were ration, where there were vegetative and sensitive souls, pre-rational ones, that would be in our evolutionary history, not yeah. within the human species itself. Now, what about the souls of non-humans? Here we don't know. Um, the church has not taken a position. It could be that their souls are inherited. Traducianism could be true for non-human creatures, ah, right. in which case um, the vegetative souls of non-intelligent animals would could could have evolved alongside their bodies, and then for intelligent sense animals that have sensitive souls, their souls could have evolved, and even among hominid ancestors of mankind, their souls could have evolved um, alongside their bodies up to the point that God started biblical humans and started creating their souls from nothing. Yeah, it could be that way. That's a matter of speculation. It also could be that God has been creating every single soul of every life form from nothing all the way down through history. Right. That's also a possibility. Right. So we don't really know there. It's a matter of speculation. Um, in terms of uh, we, what, how other closely related species, human subspecies like Neanderthals and Denisovans, would they count as biblical humans? I don't know. And it would simply be a matter of speculation. I think that uh, it's my I can't say for sure. I would tend if I if I were confronted with them, I would tend to err on the side of regarding them as human uh, in biblical humans. Um, So I would evangelize them. Oh, sure. I see what you mean. They were here. And if they said, I want to be baptized, I want to get on in on this Jesus eternal life stuff. Right. Then I would I would baptize. And we do have evidence that they, you know, were able to do a lot of things like count and and uh, they use rituals to bury their dead, which and they have grave goods, which, you know, suggests that they have a concept of the afterlife. And if you've got a concept of God and the afterlife and things like that, or one or the other, if you think about God or if you think about the afterlife, I assume you have the same basic rationals kind of soul. Right. Right. So I would assume that there is I would err on the side of saying these guys are fellow rational humans and biblical humans. Um, can't prove that, but that would be my personal speculation. What if they're not? What if they, what if even though they're very similar to us, they're not biblical humans? Well, I would say, you know, would they be in the afterlife, which is one of the questions she asked? I would say, we don't know. We don't know that for animals. Um, Now, it's been a common theological opinion that non-rational souls don't survive death, but that's not church teaching. That's theological speculation. And if you've got a soul that is on the verge of ration of full human rationality i don't know maybe it's rational enough to survive death rationality is not an on or off thing it comes in degree yeah right and so i would say that um that i don't know whether these guys will be in heaven or not but certainly if i ever met them 
I would uh, do my best to make sure they get there. Uh, Edith, thank you so much uh, for that question. I will do Stephen's question. So it's not an anonymous question. We have Stephen next. And then we'll once again hear a theme from weird questions uh, from Eric and NATO, to whom we are just so grateful. Yeah, that was really beautiful to get that. Very Um, talented guys. I know that was. Yeah, it was exciting to get it. Uh, Stephen uh, asks this question, Jimmy, if the farthest known galaxy is about 13 billion light years away from the Earth, and if it took 13 billion years for light from that galaxy to reach Earth, then how did the galaxy and Earth become so far apart from each other if they themselves have not been moving away from each other over uh, each other at the speed of light mm-hmm. uh, for 13 billion years? I know that our solar system moves through space at only a small fraction of the speed of light. Also, I realize that our solar system and Earth have not been in existence for 13 billion years, but presumably the particles from which they are made are at least that old and somehow arrived at their current location. So you see what he's saying. Okay. We, have, we have a problem. So so there are a couple of things here. Uh, now, it's very common for people to imagine that the um, that the entire universe was compressed in at the Big Bang was compressed into a single point. We don't know that to be the case. Um, but it was much smaller and hotter than it is now. But um, we don't know whether it was a single point or not. That's something that's a matter of speculation. When the Big Bang occurred about 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago, within a fraction of a second of the Big Bang, a phenomenon, and this this is the common scientific account today. Right. It is not it is not definitive. Science is always subject to revision. But according to the common scientific account today, within a fraction of a second of the Big Bang, I think it was like 10 to the minus 36 seconds. About um, that, rough. A phenomenon began known as inflation. Yeah. And in the inflation process, the universe expanded within just another fraction of a second massively. It increased in size by, um, uh, I want to say... If I recall, oh, yeah, um, 100 septillion times bigger. So that's 10 to the 26th. The universe just in a fraction of a second, like between 10 to the ah. minus 6 and 10 to the minus 32 seconds, wham, the universe is 100 septillion times larger. So things are already yeah. millions of light years apart, billions yes. of light years millions apart. Millions of light years. Within less than a second. After the Big Bang. After the Big Bang. Got it. Okay. And, and, the, um, and, and then inflation shut off. Yeah. And so the unit rate of the universe's expansion slowed. And uh, it continued to slow or be slow until the universe was about 5 billion years old. And then another process known as that's caused is produced by what's theoretically described as dark energy began increasing the expansion rate of the universe, which is why the universe is accelerating now. So the universe has not, according to the standard scientific account, accelerated or expanded smoothly. Yeah. It's, it had a huge initial rush outward, and then it slowed down, and now it's speeding up again, but not nearly as fast. But that huge initial rush was much faster than the speed of light. And that's possible because even though matter moving through space is light speed limited, space itself, space itself is not light speed limited. Ah. And so these faster than light expansions can happen. 
And actually, even today, there are some points in the universe that are accelerating away from us faster than light. And as a result, the stars that we can see today at the very edge, if because they're accelerating away from us faster than the speed of light, they drop over the universe's cosmic horizon. And we actually lose about 20,000 stars per second to the acceleration over the cosmic horizon. And I didn't even miss them until now. And now I yeah. regret that. But this, all of this expansion is why the universe is not just 13 or 14 light, uh, billion light years across. It's right. actually the uh, radius of the universe is 46 billion light years. And the visible universe itself is 92 billion light years across. But we know that's only a fraction of the true size of the universe. We can tell based on measurements of the microwave radiation out in the universe called the cosmic microwave background. Um, it's the earliest energy we can see from about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. We can tell by measuring uh, the the cosmic microwave background that the universe is at least 250 times bigger than what we can see. <laughs> and what so, we can see is... Billion. No, is 92 billion oh, light years across. Billion. Oh, yeah. And so if so, yes, it's true. There there are galaxies that are 13 billion light years away and we can see them. Yeah. But given that the universe is so much bigger than what we can see, it doesn't mean that we and that galaxy 13 billion years ago started at the same point. We could have at least within a fraction of a second after the Big Bang already been millions of light years away. Right. And so even though we're not moving, since this galaxy is on this side of the cosmic horizon and let's say is not about to drop over it, even though we're not moving faster than light with, res with respect to each other, uh, or you, it's taken 13 billion years for the light from it to reach us. Right. Because that did travel through space. That did travel through space and light does move. At, at what speed does light move, Psychelet? I would say uh, about 167,000 miles a second. Well, 186. 186. But I, I just meant, I, I was, was setting you up for an easy. The, the light moves at the speed of light. Oh, I see. I could have got away with that. If, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, so you, it, it's not required that we and that other galaxy started at exactly the same point because the universe is much bigger. It could have started at a somewhat distant point from us, and it's just taken that long for the light to reach us. So that's uh, a basic explanation. Um, it's it can kind of be tricky to understand the dynamics of this with yeah. all that expansion in different ways happening. But that's the basic answer. We don't have to be moving at a um, at at the speed of light with respect to each other. Although if it is thirteen billion light years away, we're moving at a pretty good clip away from perspective. Yeah. And it, locally, we may only be moving, but all that space between us continues to expand. expand. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, great question. Thank you very much. Uh, we asked and Eric and NATO answered, and we just had the world premiere of the theme. I'm calling it this. They didn't call it this, but uh, the theme for J Jimmy Akins uh, for when he comes here to do uh, weird questions with us. So the theme from weird questions, can we just hear it again? Because I just thought it was great.
theme uh, for this. Oh, I really like the that closing part of it. That's the really cool. The whole thing is it's very well done. Very well done. All right, I'm gonna try to get you another question here, Jimmy. Anonymous asks. Well, first of all, Anonymous says. I'm not exaggerating when I say that weird questions with Jimmy Aiken is the highest form of edutainment I've ever seen. I'm with you, Anonymous, and certainly the most restful content on the Catholic Internet. It makes me enjoy thinking again. Anyway, onto the question. In the early 90s, when there was a sci-fi show called Quantum Leap about a man named Sam who travels through time by leaping into other people. In one episode, he leaps into a priest right when he's supposed to say, you may kiss the bride. Later, he tries to hear a confession, but gets interrupted. My question is, if Sam, who's not ordained, actually carried out these sacraments while leaped into the priest, would they be valid and or elicit a perfect weird question for Jimmy Aiken? Okay, so I remember the the show um, Quantum Leap from the 90s. It starred... Um, oh, uh, Captain uh, Archer. Uh, Captain Archer. Scott. Uh, Scott Bakula. Yeah. As well as uh, uh, the guy who played number one on Battlestar Galactica whose name I'm blanking on, but the, I, rem, I saw a few episodes of it and I, I liked it, but I've never watched the whole thing. And so I may at some point, but um, I needed to answer this question to find out how the time travel works, because if he's just leaping into the body of a priest, it's like his mind is being imposed, his memory patterns are being temporarily imposed on someone, but that priest is ordained yeah, and yeah, yeah. still has his soul, right? then the answer for some things might be different than others, like consecrating the Eucharist. Because if the priest still has his body and his own soul, and his memories have just been altered to Sam Beckett's, well, then he would be able to consecrate it, because he's got the soul of an ordained priest. Right. But um, I checked, and, you know, today there's a wiki for everything, and there's a fandom wiki for Quantum Leap, and I, I looked at Dean Stockwell. Thank you, Darren. Oh. Yeah. Um, who played Al yeah. on uh, on the show. Uh, there's a, a, a fandom wiki for Quantum Leap. And I looked it up to find out how did the time travel work on that show. And it turns out Sam only looks like a different person to the people around him. But it's really him in his body. Oh, I never so, got that. Yeah. Okay. So what happens is he displaces except for their appearance, he displaces this other person. So he transubstantiates. You know, the appearances remain the same, but the substance is different. Oh, yes, he does. And he's there with he, with his own body. And the person he leapt into, known as a leapy, is, is, is transferred to a waiting room back at the project that he was in charge of. So you've got Sam under an illusion in the past and you've got the person he leapt into back in the present in a waiting room. And actually sometimes they'll apparently interview the leap E to find out the information they need to tell Sam to help him. Oh, so really they're two completely different people. And so it's really Sam Beckett who's in the past and Sam Beckett therefore could not perform a sacrament that, um, that requires an ordained priest. Now he could perform baptisms, because you don't have to be an ordained priest to baptize. And potentially he could perform, he could witness the sacrament of marriage because you don't have to be a priest for that. In the particular case of him leaping into someone or displacing someone at the moment of you may kiss the bride, at that point, the sacrament's already been done. So right. the priest who was there to witness it, it would have been valid and licit. And Sam has just like elbowed that priest off the stage at the last moment 
but the sacrament's already there. Yeah, it's funny that the, in that episode, they didn't actually have him celebrate any sacrament. Yeah. Nice, I wonder nice if there was a the Catholic. authors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, somebody knew what they were doing. That was very well done. Uh, that was from Anonymous. Anonymous, I'm, I'm with you, too. I love Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken, and I like the word edutainment, too. He's educational, and he's, and he's tainment. Entertainment. Thank you. So, Jimmy, those were some excellent questions and also excellent answers. So that's it from us. We would love to hear your theories about the weird questions and answers that you just heard. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or by calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video production work and animation that they do on Mysterious World. You can check out their work by going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, please uh, do subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notice whenever I release a video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. I'm trying to get up to 50,000. Uh, subscribers, and I'll only get there with your help. So I really do appreciate it. And thank you. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? In the 1970s, the Israeli psychic and magician Yuri Geller popularized a practice known as spoon bending or metal bending, where he would apparently bend metal objects psychokinetically. And there is a debate uh, about to what extent is Yuri Geller a genuine psychic and to what extent is he just using magician's tricks. However, that may be. Yuri Geller spawned a movement where, uh, beginning in the 1980s, thousands of people have participated in what are known as spoon bending or metal bending parties. And we're going to be talking about the results that they have found as a result of holding these. PK parties. Excellent. Very interesting. I'll be sure to hide my wife's silverware before I do this. She'll be very unhappy <laughs> if we bend all her spoons. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts that helps us grow this community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from today's discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 226. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. 
If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who.